This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are speaking to one of my favorite folks. His name is Ben Carrington. He's a professor of sociology and journalism at the Annenberg School at the University of Southern California, aka USC, and the author of Race, Sports, and Politics, The Sporting Black Diaspora. He is going to talk to us about USC, college football, and the recent $150 million hiring of Lincoln Riley, the new football coach. Cannot wait for this conversation. Also, I've got some choice words about the NBA looking like hypocrites on questions of social justice. I've got Jake's takes. I got the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. I got Kaepernick watch, I got more. So please stick around and let's speak to Professor Ben Carrington. Lincoln Riley, USC. The contract details, $110 million, $6 million home in L.A., unlimited use of the private jet 24-7 for family. Uh, what's the reaction been on campus in your circles to the hiring of Lincoln Riley? Well, <clears throat> it depends which circles we're talking about. So um, within the, I think within the faculty as a whole and the staff, I think there was – dismay if I'm honest you know a sense I mean you have to remember as with many universities like USC has spent the past effectively 18 months trying to get itself out of a massive financial hole um you know that the, the the economic impact of COVID hit the university to the tune of about 300 million dollars approximately about 300 million dollars um which is huge you know that's a huge sum of money and so we had to Layoff staff, staff were laid off. So they, the, that, to be fair to university, it did as much as it possibly could to keep the staff on furlough for as long as it could. But it, it came to a point where staff were laid off. You know, so the staff that work in cafeterias, you know, the, the fairly low paid staff, if there's nobody on campus, 
there comes a point at which you know they're, they're not doing any work and university said you know what we, we, we can't continue to employ you um faculty had a pay freeze um which in this environment is effectively a pay cut and we contributions to our pensions were suspended which anyone who knows a bit about pensions and math is if you don't have any contributions to your pension for a year the compound effect of that over time is huge so so the university came to the faculty and said look th these are unprecedented times you know we have to tighten our belts um senior administrators took between 10 and 30 percent pay cuts we're all in this together you know like we just have to get through this and i think the faculty and staff understood that yes we understood that you know we were dependent upon income student tuition and these were difficult financial times and we're still in those times and we're just kind of coming out of it now we've managed to make some really difficult cuts faculty weren't allowed my, my research budget was frozen i didn't travel for the past 18 months as a, as a scholar who travels because we simply weren't allowed to you know so it was basically we, we have to make these really draconian cuts for the good of the institution so to come out of that and then to hear these figures of you know and, and effectively you know, there's at least $150 million that I've estimated that's going to replace in the head coach, $150 million over 10 years. Well, you have, you have to factor in, of course, that they fired Clay Helton. So that there's about $10 million just to buy Clay Helton out of his contract. You then have an, at least $5 million to buy out Riley from his OU contract. So you're at $15 million, even before you've got to what the new coach is going to earn. And of course, the other part of it is, which people don't you know, talk about, is that in the last year of Clay Hilton's um, you know, um, stewardship, he was hiring left, right and centre all of these coaches to try desperately to hold on to his job. All those coaches have effectively now been fired. So if you add in the cost of firing those coaches, who are probably on two and three and four year contracts, one or two years into it, the cost of now Riley's new coaches coming in, and I've counted at least five coaches have come in, like the the... the the, the sums are astronomical. So given all of that, yes, I think there was dismay, there was anger, there was um, almost like incomprehension about what did we have to sacrifice as faculty and staff for the past 18 months that apparently within about 12 to 16 hours, the university was able to find $150 million as a way to kind of show up the, you know, the football program. So, um, so Amongst some circles, dismay, anger, um, um, disappointment. Amongst others, of course, we have to admit that other people were delighted. You know, if you read some of the comments from alumni, um, some students, um, this was a great moment for USC in helping us to get back to where we belong. Um, and as Coach Riley himself said at the, the press conference, um, when he said that he had he had, had reassurances from the um, Rick Caruso, who's our chair of the board of trustees and Carol Fault, our president, that USC would do, quote, anything and everything to put USC back to where it belongs. Now, I'm not sure if there's any other part of the university, even, you know, the medical school, the law school, you know, College of Liberal Arts, where if the dean went to the president, so we can do everything and anything, like, like a blank check, whatever it takes to become number one, they say, well, within reason <laughs> they'd say of course no we want to strive to be the best but it's interesting basically that the, the message that he was given that he conveyed was whatever it takes we're going to do to put 
USC has been the number one football program in, in, in the country. And so I, I think there's shock would be another way to say it. I think that the size of the investment was quite shocking, given where we are economically as an institution. What is their, what is their justification for doing this? I mean, particularly, what could possibly be their economic justification for doing this? And in your mind, does that argument have any currency? The If you speak to some of the senior administrators, they will say to you that this is a bet, this is a gamble. That and I and I should I actually have some sympathy for the senior administrators, and by that I mean the president and the provost and, and, and others, because they're in a tricky situation. Um, if you look at the CVs and for most university presidents, a lot of them are lawyers and engineers. If you look at their background, they these these are not elite athletes. Like most university presidents were, were not D1 scholarship students. In fact, they don't even follow sports. So you, have, you always have that awkward moment when you see, especially in basketball, these presidents having to sit courtside. They've got no idea what's happening. They go to these football games and there's discussions around like the D line, you know, and, and, and routes. <laughs> you just know, like, they have no idea. And and for many of them, like, they, they uh, maybe 10, 15 years earlier, they moved into administration, they wanted to build academic programs, they had a, and they had a, 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 a desire, a, a, a desire for scholarship and, and the, you know, the life of the mind. And suddenly they have to pretend that they, they, they care about college sports. And you can see in the language that they use that they don't know what they're talking about. And suddenly they realize, you know, if I don't get this right, I get fired. Like I'm under so much pressure. And if you look at, you know, if you look at the horrendous abuse that Carol Fault, our president and the athletics director got over the past couple of years, including death threats. I mean, we shouldn't, I, I would never underestimate the political pressure that presidents and athletics directors are under in these types of schools like USC for success on the field. And I actually, and when you speak to many of these people kind of off the record or privately, they'll say, look, this is a, this is a mess. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, like, I, they would say, I hear you, Ben. I agree. Like we've just gone to the faculty to try to save thirty million dollars in terms of suspending um, you know, contributions to, to salaries and to pensions, trying to maybe get a hundred million dollars in savings, and then we've just given one hundred and fifty million dollars to a place a, a person who doesn't teach a single student, who doesn't supervise any PhD students, and they but they'll say is look we we are under this enormous pressure, and so my response is always well then show some leadership. Be brave enough to do what you know Chicago University did in was it nineteen whenever thirty nine or forty nine when they decided that you know what we're going to be a university that's that's focused on education and research and teaching rather than trying to win football games, you know, and to say that you know we're going to and and the problem is when you bring up these points, they say well you're anti-sport, and, and I say well like. Have you read my CV? Like I, 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 I research sport. I teach sports. I'm invested in sports. I've played sports. I love sports. I'm, you know, right now I'm keeping my eye on Man City versus Southampton because Southampton are down on wanting City to lose that so Liverpool can win the championship game. Like I am invested in sports. In fact, I know sports better than these senior administrators who come to me and say, "Well, but Ben, there's a there's a beauty in sports, and it and it develops character, and we have to invest in it." Like all those things are true. But you don't need a professional system at universities to produce that. You know, the very amateur model that they profess to, to embrace is precisely understanding the importance, but also the limitations of sports, what sports can and can't do. And so I think what you have is this idea that they feel 
this political pressure to kind of support the team because they're so fearful of the alumni. And then what happens is they 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 basically get themselves into this corner whereby you know you you either go all in or you don't. And they and they can't then at the moment senior administrators at places like and it's a particular category of university I think the USC's the UT Austin's who are striving to be as strong as the Ivy Leagues mm-hmm. but they're competing with the SEC schools the Georgias you know the Alabamas who are operating on a different model both kind of academically on, on, on the sports side and so the, these kind of very strong academic institutions that are involved in Division One sports find, find themselves in this really tricky situation where there's a race to the bottom around things like recruiting, and they can't go kind of quote too low in order to maintain their academic standards. But for most of the faculty at places like you know UT Austin and USC, we don't give a, a crap about who wins the, you know the, the football championship. We're more concerned about Pulitzer Prize winners and Nobel Prize winners and MacArthur Genius Awards and NIH grants. And so they find themselves in a situation. So the argument that they've put forward is this, that this is a bet. They've taken a financial gamble. And the gamble is the following, that with the hire of Lincoln Riley, season ticket holders will start to come back. That the, you know, I, when I'm, I was, as you know, Dave, I was at UT Austin for many years. I, I, and, and I went from one bill of the beast to a different bill of the beast. <laughs> and I remember going to my, my first football game at USC I might as well interrupt you there, Ben, because one of my questions a little ahead in the game here, but I, I please address it as I was going to ask you, coming from the University of Texas, if you could speak a little about yeah. football culture at UT and do a little compare and contrast for us with USC. Yeah, so, so you know, I went to UT straight from the UK, remember, so my, my, mind, my mind was completely blown. You know, UT Austin's football stadium holds more than Wembley in England, you know, like, uh, I say that to my friends back in England, think I'm exaggerating, saying no, like UT Austin has its own golf club, golf course, you know, all of it, baseball, as you, as you know. Um, and, it, and it was for many under the lost odds. Now, the lost odds is the archetypal modern athletics director, brilliant, savvy, smart, ruthless, turned UT Austin into a financial beast, even though it hadn't won the national football championship in years. It, it, you know, it's the, the Dallas Cowboys of, of, of college sports. <laughs> in so um, many ways. <laughs> storied history, iconic brand, doesn't win anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet produces a whole bunch of money, which says a lot about sports in America and college sports in and of itself. Um, and so going from that environment where you really realized, you know, where Red McCoons, the big power player, you know, uh, in, in Texas, you know, has his, his, na- his name is on the business school and at one end of the football stadium. Now, what, what an interconnection that is, that you get to, the business school is named after you, and then the main the main end at the football stadium. So I very quickly got immersed in, okay, I see the close interconnections between sports, politics, money, alumni, and the running of an academic institution. Coming to USC, it was interesting, because people would talk about USC in the same way, that, you know, we, they're the kind of rivals, in some sense they are. And I remember going to the first football game at USC, this is 2017. And it was a hot day in LA, which meant it was in the high 80s, which in Austin would have been a very cool day. And and the stadium was about 60% full. In other words, 100,000 people, 60,000 there, 40,000 wasn't there. And I was stunned. 
because that would never happen at UT, even if UT had sucked the year before and they were playing the University of wherever, southern, mid-state Missouri, that no one had ever, the, the stadium would still be packed for opening game day. And I said, well, why is there so few people here? And they said, oh, it's really hot today. <laughs> and I was like, so what struck me was like the LA and Austin are different beasts. And though, though USC claims has this kind of outward identity and brand, which is up there with the others, that the, the fan base is a bit fickle, right? If the team's not doing well, and I'm not talking about, no, I'm sure they'd be the same with Alabama and these other places, but that might mean that five or 10,000 people didn't turn up, not 40,000 wouldn't turn mm. up. And so I quickly realized that there was a disjunct, a mismatch between the image and the brand of USC and where the program was actually at and also the fan base. And that kind of then circles back to the question you asked me before, Dave, which is the argument is that we're invest and they, they administrators call it an investment. An investment in the football program increases revenue somehow. And part of it is that they'll go from 60,000 to 80,000 to sold out stadiums again. The alumni will start writing bigger checks. That the, the president has been on record as saying that within two years, they would have recovered the money for the contract for the coach. And within five years, the athletics program will be will be, um, will be solvent again, which in of itself is amazing. What, the, what we what we now know, actually, is that there's been a, a deficit for at least five years in athletics. In other words, the University of Southern California has been cross subsidizing athletics at a time when its performance on the field, especially football, has been going down and down, getting further into debt. And then what do they do at that moment? Spend even more money. Yeah. Now, if, if, a de if a dean of an academic program had done that, if a dean of an academic program for five years was running a deficit and then went to the private and said, by the way, we've just, gone and, we've just gone and invested $150 million and we're not sure how it's going to come back, that dean would have been fired. But the argument is that there's TV revenue money around the corner. This is the big, the big thing, and 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 it's a gamble basically. Yeah. That there'll be more interest in the program, more people will sign up for season tickets, the fans will come back, that the alumni will start writing checks that were holding off before, and this this TV money with the, with the contracts due in about two years, eighteen months to two years, that this will be so big it will offset the deficit and 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 put and put athletics back into a, a solvent position, and it's and I'm thinking, this is what a gamble. You know, and, and even if and even if this all works out, like, let's just say this this all comes together, that suddenly there are 90,000 people at the stadium again when it's been averaging 60, 65. Let's just say that all these really rich donors who are going to write checks to university were holding off. And part of the argument, Carol Fultz said this at the, the, the introduction, the press conference, which I think is really disingenuous, and, and I'm sure she believes it, so I don't want to say she's arguing in, in bad faith, but I just think she's wrong, is that she, she gave an example and the example that she gave was there was somebody who wasn't really wealthy. There was a, an, a, an alumni came up to her and said, I'm not super wealthy, but I've been so disappointed by the football program over the years. I've been holding off writing a donation to the medical school. But now that you've hired this coach, I'm now writing a check for $200,000 to the medical school. And I'm only doing that because you've now hired this coach. And, and, and other administrators have shared this anecdote. And I heard this and I said, Please stop saying this because there's so much wrong with this story. For one, you can't start the story by saying this person wasn't particularly wealthy and yet he has a spare 200,000. Now, true, maybe if you hang out with millionaires, millionaires. and millionaires, like folks have a spare 200K. Like, so just like just the start of the story is like, even if you could, if you can use an anecdote, please use a better one. So the anecdote falls apart at the beginning where you say, average Joe writes me a check for 200K. Further, 
the Czech was dependent upon you hiring the football coach. Because part of the argument is, what, what, the reason why the president uses this anecdote is, the argument is people start writing Czech, but it goes to athletics. So that doesn't really help the university. That, in other words, those Czechs just go to this big beer off. So, the, so you need an anecdote that says, no, 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 this isn't just about athletics. It's good for the university. And I'm thinking, if I was a president, someone came up to me and said, I was going to write a check for the medical school, but I didn't because the football program wasn't doing well. And now you've hired this coach, I'm going to write a check. I'd have told that person to fuck off. I'd have said, really? Like, you're ever, <laughs> like you want to make a pro contribution to help fight cancer and to train the, doctors, the, the future doctors, but you refused to do so because we went five and seven last year. And now that we've got a new football coach, and the other part of the, part of the anecdote, which I just thought was worth pointing out is, Given that we know what we know about his salary, as you just pointed out, Dave, that probably equates to about one week's of his salary. So basically, we've got a donation that might cover about one week's worth of Coach Riley's salary as a way to justify spending what I have actually calculated is actually close to $250 million. So but that's, that's the argument, that this will be an investment and somehow the, the college, the athletics program within five years will be solvent, we will no longer run a structural deficit, and then the university as a whole will benefit because so many people see us as associated with sports and how well we do in, you know, in, in the Pac-12 and trying to be Alabama and all of the rest of it. So Lincoln Riley said that he expects to turn over something like 35 roster spots on the team, uh, roster churn and burn. And that's basically half a program's travel roster, 35 yeah. spots. What does that even tell us? And that news sort of went over without a blink. But what does that tell us about the business of college football at an institution of higher learning? It's a great question. I'm really glad you brought it up. And that that's one of the main things that concerns me. I mean, if really pushed about what concerns me about college sports and where we are, it's about the welfare of student athletes. Like the money thing is, you know, I, the, the, the size of the salaries are, are morally disgusting. I will say that the, 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 the salary of these head coaches is, morally speaking, disgusting. It cannot be justified on moral grounds. But that's a separate issue. Suppose it's, and, and it's even more problematic when it turns out that athletics has a structural deficit that it's not even covering its own costs. And we're cross-subsidizing an entity which is not an academic unit. Now, athletics doesn't teach a single student. It doesn't graduate a single student. It's an auxiliary, by definition. It's an auxiliary unit, just like estates is, or, the, or public safety is, you know, or housing. And yet we cross-subsidize it to such an extraordinary degree. But putting all that aside, what concerns me is the academic welfare and the academic integrity of what we do. And one of my big concerns is that when you've told a head coach, apparently, that we're going to do, quote, anything and everything to put the program back. From the coach's point of view, he's now running that program like a professional sports system. Yeah, these are, these are, these are, this is the trading, this is the, you know, this is the transfer, the trading moment, you know, where you're going to trade in, in a, trading students in and out. And they're not, at that moment, they're not students at all, they're, they're players, right? And so from the coach's point of view, that makes a lot of sense. Although Coach Riley is on record, and I think you know this, Dave, earlier, of being, a, you know, he, he wants this along the lines of he wouldn't really trust a student wanted to transfer. Now, what's his motivation for leaving a program? Well, 
you know, obviously the obvious one response is, well, that doesn't apply to coaches. Coaches can leave programs apparently within 12 to 24 hours, um, you know, with a big check at the end of it. So let's not get too moralistic about looking down on these mercenary student athletes transferring from one university to another when coaches do it all the time and they get 100 million plus for doing it. But part of it was, you know, what's the motive? No, this person isn't really coming to this university because they want to be here. They're doing it for purely sporting reasons. But that's exactly what we're now doing. We're, we're, we're looking at this roster like it's a professional roster. We're looking at weaknesses and we're trading out certain footballers and trading in other ones. Like that point, and, and this is one of my worries about the, the player, the, the, the portal was supposed to empower the students. It was supposed to allow the students to be active agents in moving from one university to the other. My fear is now that it's actually become a mechanism by which head coaches encourage, suggest, mm -hmm. um, imply um, that another university would be a better for their for their chances of making it to the NFL. And you're not likely to get much playing time next year. So I'm not telling you to leave because that would be breaking NCAA policies. We're not going to say you have to leave here, but we're going to let you know that, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm really good friends with the, with the head coach over at, you know, University of wherever, and we, we can get you a spot there and you can be playing regularly. Yeah, but it's up to you, of course. It's up to you. And by the way, just, you know, we've gone into a player's portal and we're recruiting this player exactly for your position. But hey, the choice is yours. No pressure whatsoever. And then you, and next, one thing, if you had one or two students move, that wouldn't be that surprising. But three or four, six or seven, nine or ten, fifth, like once you get into these figures, that is that is really worrying for a system that claims to be about amateurism. No, so my, my, my response would be, let's just be honest about what we're doing here. Say this is a professional system. We're seeing these student athletes as athletes first and students second. And in fact, we're going to start treating them, trading them as if they were pro athletes. But of course, these athletes don't have representation. Now, a big part of it is, is that'd be one thing if that was the case. But as we know, in, you know, in, in professional sports, there's an agent involved who's looking out normally for the for the player's interest, although we could we could discuss whether that's really the case. But, you know, everybody else has agents and people negotiating for them, you know, and I've, you know, I've already, I've, I'm aware of stories of student athletes feeling they've been pressured to move. And that is an absolute disgrace, an absolute moral disgrace. I mean, well said, indeed. Now, defenders, though, will say that the student athlete graduation rate is higher than that of the general student body. Is that even true? I mean, no, make of no. that, you hear that argument. It's not true. And, oh, you're touching my buttons today, Dave. Okay, so, <laughs> Dave the button toucher with Ben. Um, yeah, so, it's, well, depending on how you say the sentence, it's either true but deeply misleading or a lie. So, <laughs> this, so let me go through both of them. So. And President Fault, Carol Fault, has twice publicly said, she, and again, the other, she said two things that when she introduced the new head coach. And this was all because she was aware of the backlash, the pushback. So part of it is the need to say, look, this sounds like a lot of money, but don't worry, other money is coming in from these regular Joes now writing $200,000 to the med school. OK, so, so it sounds bad, but don't worry, other money is coming in. And the second part of it is, of course, you know, of the, the importance of being a student athlete. And did you know that the student athlete graduation rate is actually higher than the student population? That is not true. That is a, let me be generous because she's the president. 
the president misspoke or she was misinformed. Now, there are two ways in which you measure a graduation rate. The standard way in which we measure students is, is pretty straightforward. Students turn up on day one, they apply to University of Southern California or UT Austin or Chicago, and they come, they turn up on week one, they're in class, and the federal government has a really clear, strict, but unequivocal way to measure graduation, and it's this. Six years later, how many of those students graduated? That's it, you turn up, you're there, you registered, how many are there six years later? And they also do a four-year graduation rate. And it's pretty straightforward. Um, and I think USC's six-year graduation rate is about 92%, which is really good. And our four-year is about 77%, which again is very good. So basically within four years, 77% of USC graduates graduate. Within six years, it's up to 92%. If you compare that to athletics, the rate would be much, much lower. But there's something called the graduate success rate. Did you hear that word, success rate? It's a slightly different phraseology. And what this, and, and there is, to be fair to um, athletics, what they would say is, look, if you use that metric for sports, it's really unfair because basically like, basketball would be disastrous. People that start in, in, in week one, they don't even make it to year two, one and done, then they're the famous one and done. Or people might leave for the NFL early. And so you know, they're there for two or three years, they don't graduate, but they decide, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna declare, and I'm gonna go, or they might go to another university. They might say, you know what? I'm gonna decide that my chances at USC aren't good, and I'm gonna go elsewhere. So, so athletics departments lobbied the NCAA to come up with their own special graduation rate metric. And it's this, as long as you graduate, or as long as you transfer out in good academic standing, it doesn't count against your numbers. In other words, that you know you were an A plus student, or you'd met an academic threshold, and you decided to transfer from USC to Stanford. You, you don't harm our numbers. Yeah, you don't. You don't. You're not a negative against us. Or if you decide to, you're in good academic standing, and you go to the pros. That doesn't count against our numbers. And of course, what that does is it enables some sports to kind of have a 100% graduation rate. Which is fantastic because that's clearly, you know, that, that sounds brilliant. But once you look into the numbers a bit more, you realize that's only certain sports. Other sports graduation rates are still lower than USC's ones, even under the graduate success rate. And if you compare it like for like, in other words, if you say this is what this is because it's an unfair comparison. And even the NCAA says you should not make that comparison because it's on a different metric. When you make that comparison, certain sports drop down to like 40%, 30% graduation rates, even lower. Like, like th th there's a bunch of people that turn up on day one and they never finish with a degree. So I think it's, again, this will be an example where I'd say, let's just be honest about this. At no point, and Athletics put out a, you know, a, an email around this, and I, and I pushed back to Athletics, and I've mentioned this you know, to the AD, who I think is a good AD, to say, look, Please stop putting out press releases in which you say the you and, and the athletics is, is careful. They don't lie. So they're, they're telling the truth, but misleading. They will say the student athlete graduation rate is higher than USC's federal graduation rate. But who knows what that means? Like unless unless you're like me, who know and people that like know this stuff. If you just read that sentence, the student university student athlete graduation rate is higher than USC's federal graduation rate. You just assume, oh, it's higher. But they slipped in the federal part to cover themselves. Please don't do that. Just be honest about the graduation rates. You know, because some sports are telling a good story. And this is the thing to break down. Some sports really are doing a good job. And they are educating students, playing sports to a high level, and trying to square the circle. Other sports aren't. 
And one of the things I would have pointed out at that press, uh, that, no, press conference was that the president talked about the student athlete graduation rate as a whole. Well, the key thing is football. Like you've right. just hired a football coach. <laughs> Let, use the statistic for football. That will be a better one. And use the statistic that's based on the same metrics as the university. And then you get a, then you then that would that statistic would not be used at a press conference because it would tell a very different story. And then, then one other thing. And then if you look at African American graduation, if you break that down by race, the story gets even worse. You have a disproportionate number of African American men not graduating, or if they are, they're being transferred out. And this is one of my concerns about the transfer portal. It'd be one thing if these 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 students were transferring to Stanford, Harvard, you know, UT Austin, um, other equivalent universities in terms of academic, but they're not. It'd be fascinating. When you try, and I've been doing this to see, okay, where they ended up, I'm like, Oh my God, this is, these are young men who had a chance at least come out with a USC stance degree, hopefully. And they're now going to a place which is off them dangling the hope of an NFL contract, which they're likely not to get. And they're going to come out with a degree from an institution which is, which is clearly less than a USC. And I think that's part of it. That, that's what you know, kind of breaks my heart is, the, you know, is what it is doing in the long run, five and 10 years down the line, these young men who invested so much of their bodies and their minds and, and we're leaving aside the physical damage we're talking about, you know, especially in college sports, you know, to, to the bodies of these young men. And, the, and, and they, at least they had a chance and would have come out with a USC degree. Now these guys going into the portal, very, very few of them are going to universities that are as good as or better than USC academically. And nearly all of them are going to very, to, to institutions whose academic standing is nowhere near that of USC. Wow, Ben. I mean, you've been in the weeds both at the University of Texas and now at USC on this issue. In a sentence, what have you learned about the business of football in your time in higher ed? That it is a business. <laughs> it is a business. It is a business with all yeah. of the pros and cons of that. And the, the, the amateurism is a, shamateurism is a fig leaf um, that, that just marks a brutal, aggressive, efficient system that should be named as such. And then we can deal with it. But yeah, it's, it's, and I think it's damaging to the institution's academic credibility, their academic reputations, and that delicate balance between sports being a, a space for growth, for character development, for learning, and sports being this space that bastardizes those ideals. Is, is, is being lost. And I think what we need now is some true leadership from athletics directors, provosts and presidents to, to, to be honest about where we are um, and stop giving misleading anecdotes and statistics to, to support a system which is, is way past needing reform. And I think it's, we're getting to the position where you know, it, it can't be sustained anymore. And one more question for you. Um, Got to drop this nugget in here for the audience. They're unfamiliar. You're a scholar in the tradition of Stuart Hall, the great Jamaican-born British sociologist, cultural theorist, radical political activist. How does the work of Stuart Hall inform your analysis of college football? I think Stuart Hall, to my mind, was one of the most important intellectuals of the, the, the past half century. Um, and he, he had a line once about when you do an analysis, like what, how do you approach it? And he says, well, you have to see 
how the object that you're interested in is connected to everything else which sounds completely overwhelming when I say to someone like everything else like yes the economics the political the cultural the ideological and I think the very best writers and thinkers at some level are always trying to do that to see you know and I'll say you know I you do that Dave, Dave in your sports writing you know there, there's a tradition of critical thinkers who may be an academic, they may be a journalist, they may be a comedian, they may be whatever, who are always trying to say, oh, this appears like this is just about, you know, an NFL player protesting, you know, in, in, in one sport. But actually, it's deeply interconnected to these wider questions, these wider issues. And so for me, the kind of what I, I take from Stuart Hall is that really difficult but necessary task of trying to grapple at the same time with the specificity of what you're interested in, which is why details are important, but always then trying to take a step back. Um, the, the, the other great person that I've, has really influenced me, and I know you, Dave, is, is C.L.R. James, the, um, uh, great, another great Caribbean intellectual who wrote this really important book called Beyond a Boundary. And, and I think that you know, that title encapsulates my approach. James was interested in the game of cricket, that very English game of cricket in the Caribbean. And he writes a book called Beyond a Boundary. In other words, to, on, to understand the game of cricket, what's happening on the field, we need to understand what's happening beyond the field. And that kind of dialectical interrelationship between the wider social forces and the particular. And that's what makes you know, thinking about sports and other topics so rich, because they appear to be very simple. Um, as my students often tell me when they contact me after my classes, they say, Ben, you know, I took your class a couple of years ago, and they'd say, like, I have to just say, I, I really, I really hate you. And I say, What? Why? And I say, Well, I can't just watch sports anymore. Like I, there used to be a time I could just turn on the game and you know, get a bud with my mates. And they said, I can't do it. I'm, I'm analysing. I'm thinking. I'm, decon I'm deconstructing it. And they they say it half jokingly, but they say like my my, my appreciation of sports is so much richer now because I understand how complex they really are. And I think you know going back to college sports, I really hope those administrators, those in charge understand the complexity of college sports much more than they do, and see it. The other part of it would just be. This idea of resistance, cultural resistance, the idea that another world is possible. There are some radical critiques that are too pessimistic in a negative sense, meaning that it's easy to, 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 to highlight some of the flaws in, in, in sports, which, which is I've just done. And one of my struggles, maybe this is what I take from Hall, is how can I make an intervention that makes things better? You know, because sometimes you'll see these athletics directors and just one quick last anecdote. If you, just, I got a phone call. I'll name who it is because they've changed jobs. I got a phone call from the former president of UT Austin a couple of years ago, or a message from his secretary saying, the president of, of UT Austin would like to speak to you. Um, he read something you wrote and has and wants to discuss college sports with you. You know what the piece was, Dave? It's the interview what? that I did with you for The Nation just ah. when uh, <laughs> there was the, um, Patterson was being uh, was being fired at UT Austin and the president got hold of that uh, article on Reddit and then contacted his secretary and said, I want to speak with this Ben Carrington guy. <laughs> and so I had a really good half an hour chat with Greg Fenves, who was the president at the time, about how he might change college sports. And he listened and he asked good questions. And I, I gave him Ben's radical plan for saving college sports, um, uh, most of which I'm assuming he ignored <laughs> and thought, well, that's not going to work, Ben. But at least it, it indicated to me, Dave, this is the point, indicated to me that there are presidents out there and athletics directors who recognize the contradiction. Yeah, they're not idiots. They are very, very smart people who are trying to wrestle with a really difficult thing. And I think more of us who are on the critical end and have that kind of position, 
need to keep the conversations going with these folks. So we always make sure that the analysis is structural. It's a structural and systemic analysis. It's not about individuals. Yes, there are a few a-holes out there. Most college coaches are well-meaning people. Most athletic directors are trying to do the right thing. Most presidents, you know, are trying to do the right thing. So for me, that what I take from people like Stuart Hall and, and, and James is the idea of another world is possible, that sports is a space where we can make interventions and things can shift in a positive, progressive direction. But that only happens if we intervene in that space. And if we just dismiss it as always being like irrelevant, then I think we that that's an easy way out for, for critical for, for, for critical theorists. Now I think getting involved in the messy work without it being too reformist. The danger, of course, is we end up just with tinkering reforms on, on the side. I'm willing to take that risk, which is why I'm on the athletics council at UT, uh, was at UT and here at USC. So I keep badgering the athletics director and the provost to kind of do the right thing. Because I do genuinely believe that sports can be a force for good, but only under certain conditions. And if those conditions aren't there, sports can do the opposite. Fantastic. And been so generous with your time, Ben. I look forward to reading Ben's radical plan for saving college sports or for changing college sports. That is a pamphlet I would read. Um, last question: what, what music are you listening to these days, Ben? What's what's going through your uh, your playlist as you uh, go through life in the trend-setting mecca that is Southern California? <laughs> yeah, um, I've been getting into dub reggae of late. Some some old dub reggae. Um, Lee Scratch Perry passed away. There's some there's some real. Mm-hmm. reggae dub greats heroes who many of whom have begun to pass away of the past 12 months these are people who created a you know a, a new genre of music out of the caribbean out of jamaica um and i think and that that dub beat that deep bass the, which infiltrates so much other popular music but is often not acknowledged so i've been reimmersing myself in you know like sly and robbie and you know a number of real the peter toshes of the world um you know real real pioneers in black caribbean dub music that's reshaped the, the soundscapes the sound systems or so much of, of 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 the of the world um so i've been trying to pay homage and respect to to that so i'd encourage people to who, who aren't familiar with that music to to really check out dub and, and roots reggae roots reggae and, and dub music and Lee Scratch Perry, an absolute legend. If he's not part of your uh, turntable, make him. Hey, Ben Carrington, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you. It's, it's, it's a real pleasure. I remember being one of the first people on Ask a Sports Sociologist many, many years ago. Um, and so I, I like my once every five to eight years um, <laughs> appearance on whatever whatever Dave Zion is, is doing in the media as well. So thank you so much for your work as well, Dave, and everyone you work with. Thank you. We'll be back right after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. 
Now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, it's something only a blinkered sociopath or a billionaire hedge fund manager would say out loud. The financial titan in question, Shamath Palihapitiya, said with a shrug to fellow co-hosts of his podcast, All In, nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You bring it up because you really care, and I think it's nice that you care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Of all the things I care about, yes, it is below my line. Look, now if Malipa Patia were just some random hedge fund manager, his comments may have gone unnoticed. Or he may have been labeled just another verbose tool. However, he also owns 10% of the NBA's Golden State Warriors. The NBA, of course, has had an extremely turbulent relationship with China. The league depends on the hoops-mad country for a multi-billion dollar portion of its annual revenue, which critics say has caused the league to remain silent on China's human rights abuses, including its treatment of Uyghur Muslims that human rights organizations decry as a genocide. The NBA public relations staff has promoted the phrase Black Lives Matter, but the league's silence on China has made it a punching bag for Republicans and Democrats itching for a new Cold War with Russia, especially Republicans who hate the NBA and its players for promoting racial justice. Now, Bali Hapatia saying the quiet part out loud reveals the kind of callousness that NBA franchise owners must carry in their hearts to exercise silence in the face of such injustice. Already, the Golden State Warriors are distancing themselves from Pali Hapatia's comments, saying in a written statement to CNN, as a limited investor who has no day-to-day operating functions with the Warriors, Mr. Pali Hapatia does not speak on behalf of our franchise, and his views certainly don't reflect those of our organization. But while not speaking in an official capacity, Pali Hapatia is giving voice to the only reason NBA owners could have for their silence, that the Uyghurs don't matter enough for them to speak up. The dilemma the NBA finds itself in displays yet again the pitfalls in self-promotional and selective justice speak. The NBA says it is committed to social justice everywhere, apparently except in China, its number one profit partner. This hypocrisy doesn't only harm the public image of the NBA, it also hurts the movement against racism that the NBA purports to support. But the NBA has more than just a China problem. Several members of the NBA's billionaire class of franchise owners have made the league look hypocritical because their business interests are at odds with the league's social justice pretensions. For example, Detroit Pistons franchise owner Tom Gorris is the founder, CEO, and chairman of Platinum Equity, a private equity firm that owns Securus, the largest prison phone company in the country. Securus has a horrible reputation for fleecing the families of the incarcerated. Then there is subprime Dan Gilbert, owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. His company, Quicken Loans, settled with the Department of Justice over its alleged role in the subprime mortgage crisis, which as the housing market collapsed, disproportionately emptied black family savings accounts. Then there is the inconvenient truth that per a September 2020 report, 81% of the NBA owners' political donations go to the party of Donald Trump, Jim Crow 2.0, and the Blue Lives Matter crowd. Of course, that's Blue Lives Matter, except for the U.S. Capitol Police. This gap between public relations performance and profit-making reality is fast becoming an Achilles heel for the entire league. Commissioner Adam Silver likes to say the NBA stands for something greater. Maybe someday he'll admit 
just what that something greater is. Maybe then we'll learn how many threatened human beings exist below the NBA's bottom line. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, now's the time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week, Stand up. shockingly and happily, goes to Nick Saban and Jerry West, two legends of West Virginia sports who signed a letter to Senator Joe Manchin, who is also in the pockets of Cole, Cole Barons and all sorts of disgusting people. Joe Manchin is the absolute worst. If you don't know why, Google. Look, Joe Manchin is standing in the way of filibuster reform and actual voting rights in this country. Joe Manchin is somebody who is allowing Jim Crow 2.0 to take root and nestle uh, throughout the United States, not just in the South. And Nick Saban and Jerry West said no. You don't want this to happen. As my man Lou Moore said about Nick Saban signing this letter, he said, Bear Bryant would never. So people might have problems with Nick Saban. Hell, people might have problems with Jerry West for all I know. But them stepping up at this time in history in a state like West Virginia, you definitely get the Just Stand Up Award. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down. Uh, goes to, I mean, I could make it go to Aaron Rodgers. I could make it go to the NFL for its continuing practice of athletic apartheid. Um, there's so many people who are being annoying right now. I don't know if it's the pandemic or what. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy just giving it right back to uh, the person that we <laughs> just discussed at great length. Uh, that would be Chamath Pali Hapatia. Uh, because to be that callous in the face of such suffering while you're this billionaire hedge fund dude, just sit your ass down. We are back on the part of the show that everybody's talking about from D.C. to Buffalo and everywhere in between. It's where my son Jacob tells us who's going to win the latest NFL games, and we're in playoff season right now. We call this Jake's Takes. Jake, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty good, man. Uh, thank you, man. Uh, wonderful. My God. Wonderful <laughs> to hear uh, your picks from last weekend. Other than one game, you got everything correct in the playoffs. Um, no, I, I went four and two. Oh, you went four and two. What did I, you get wrong? I got all the AFC right. Then in the NFC, I said the Cowboys were going to win and go to the Super Bowl. I got that wrong. Yeah. Which is what that messes up my entire NFC bracket. And then I picked the I picked the Cardinals. Ooh. I picked the Cardinals over the Rams. And, you know, I did the same thing like that last year. I was like, oh, football team's going to beat the, the Buccaneers. And then they went on to go win the Super Bowl. So, mm. I don't know. Maybe last year. I could see it. You know? all, all I have to say I is I mean, that they didn't invest that much. I practically stood in front of you and begged you not to pick the Rams <laughs> over the – I mean, begged you not to pick the Cardinals over the Rams. So, you know, I think there's mm. a lesson here about listening to Papa. Okay. 
Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let's go to these games. Okay, first and foremost, Bengals travel to Tennessee to take on what has to be the most disrespected number one seed in the history of the playoffs, the Tennessee Titans. Who do you have? The Tennessee Titans, they, you know, they're getting Derrick Henry back this week. A.J. Brown is going to go off. And I personally think that they they are going to win, but I have to stick with my bracket, and I'm I'm just going to pick the Bengals. What's an argument for the Bengals winning, if you had to make an argument? Well, Joe Shiesty has been on fire these past couple weeks. You know, Jamar Chase has been arguably the most dominant receiver in football. He probably is the most dominant receiver left in these playoffs, unless you're talking about, like, Cooper a, a, a good Tyree Kill day or a good Devontae Adams day. Mm. Don't Don't squeak on the chair, please. My God. The rookie errors here. All right, so let's go to uh, Joe. What you just said, I'm a little confused. You said Joe Shiesty. Yes, Joe Shiesty. Who's Joe Shiesty? That's Joe B. That's Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow. Do you, why do they call him Joe Shiesty? I don't really know, honestly. I mean, he's got a lot of swagger on him, you know. Is that his nickname, really? Yeah, heard Joe that. Shiesty. Joe Shiesty. Yeah, that's hilarious. Also, like Joe Burr. Okay, so even though you think the Titans are going to win. You have to stick with the bracket, mm-hmm. and you're going to go with Joe Shiesty and Jamar mm-hmm. Chase just lighting up the Titans. Mm-hmm. All right, next game. We're going to do these uh, by AFC, NFC. Mm-hmm. All right, in the final uh, eight that we're dealing with here is the Buffalo Bills traveling to Kansas City. Very tough place to play, to play the Chiefs. So, you so you saw I, – I, I do think that the Titans are gonna win. I didn't go. I didn't really like. I didn't trust my bracket, but this is different. This is a Buffalo team that's coming to Kansas City. I don't care. You know, they're they're not wearing their their um their bad luck uniforms. They're coming. This is gonna be a revenge game for them. Josh Allen is gonna go off on this Kansas City defense. They're gonna look like they're playing like week two of this season. You remember week two? Mm-hmm. And. Stephon Diggs is going to go off. You you know he's going to have a great game. And that Bills defense has been arguably pro- – they, they've been top three this year. They, they've been very good. Even without Tredavious White, they are an elite defense. It's interesting. Uh, I don't think enough is even being made of the fact that the Bills played New England last week. And beat them 47-17. to 17. Like nobody expected them to win by 30. They had nine drives in the game. The Bill Bills Belichick. Did. Yeah, against Bill it's Belichick. Bill Belichick. They had nine drives. They score seven touchdowns. In a row. And the, the first seven. And well, then the only drive that they didn't score on was like a kneel. No, no, it was a kneel down at the end of the first half and a kneel down at the end of the second half. Like Other than that, they scored touchdowns. That, that you, you can't beat that. No. Like, that's just insane. And if they're coming into this game that hot, just like that, and you know, you know they're coming for the rent. You know that they're coming for revenge. I mean, this is Buffalo we're talking about. And I, I had them go into the chip, and that it's looking good right now. I mean, both of these teams are coming in really hot. Two really good commanding victories. Both of them scored 40-plus, so their offense are going to be lighting it up this game. It's going to be a fun game to it's watch. It's going to be a very fun game. That'll be tomorrow. Prime time. I mean, we're doing this Saturday morning right now. That would be uh, Sunday evening in prime time tomorrow Can't evening. Can't wait for it. All right, let's go now to... The NFC, where your bracket became a comedy of errors <laughs> when the Dallas Cowboys got just absolutely... They, they, they really should have won, though. Oh, they out... I mean, other than the 14 penalties and the horrific clock management, I mean, they're, they're the better team. Easily. 
than the San Francisco 49ers. But, you know, one of the cruel things about the playoffs, and it is very cruel, is that once you're done, you're you're done. done. So, heck with the Dallas Cowboys. No full series, you know? No. No go to seven. No, you're done. So now we got the 49ers traveling to Frigidaire, Green Bay. To play the Packers. Who do you like 49ers going to play the Packers? I really do like Green Bay in this. You know, mm-hmm. it's they are they are easily the best team, I think, in the in the in the NFC. That doesn't mean I think that they're gonna win. But yeah, they I mean, Aaron Rodgers, MVP in my opinion. You got Devontae Adams, the best receiver in the NFL, and it isn't even close. You know, Jair Alexander. Is he back? I think so. He was going to be back in like week 17, but then he got like, uh, po- he, it was like, um, he couldn't because of COVID. So, oh, oh wow. but I, I think he's going to be back this week. So having him back to a, a, a corner group with Rasul Douglas, who's looked really good, rookie corner, Eric Stokes, it's a great team. Wow. Great, great win. You got the Packers moving on. And then in the other game, this is the game that has everybody chirping. Uh, the Rams looking red hot, traveling to Tampa Bay to play Tom Brady and the Bucks. Who do you like? You know, Tom Brady, he's faced these guys for years, you know, like Von Miller, Aaron Donald. You know, They know they each also, other well. They know each other well, very well. You know, they got, of course, Jalen Ramsey, the best corner in the league. And then on offense, you got Odell, who's great, Cooper Cup, arguably not it's not really arguable but he he got a top five wide receiver season of all time you know Cam Akers back and of course Matthew Stafford who's looked who's looked quite good this year besides besides I mean he throws the ball a lot so you you know he's going to get his interceptions but you Mm -hmm. know 41 touchdowns that that's not nothing, and they're they're. I think that they're gonna beat the Buccaneers. I mean, it it, it really depends on if they have Tristan Wirfs. I think they're gonna have him, and that's definitely gonna make it harder for the um for Aaron Donald and Von Miller to face him because he's probably the best right tackle in football. And you know the Buccaneers, they they are really good. I don't think they're gonna have Leonard Fournette. They might. I don't think so though. I'm pretty sure he's still on IR. And then. They've had a lot of injuries. You know, Chris Godwin's out for the year. Antonio Brown said bye. You know, it, it's going to be really tough. But And that's why I think that the Rams are going to win. Wow. That's a – wow. So, oh, my goodness. Well, we'll talk next week about the implications of this. Am I going to pick my championship game right now or no? Well, we already know you've got the Bills coming out of the AFC. Who's coming out of the NFC as of right now in your mind? <laughs> Is it the Packers or the Rams? We know that the Packers choke. And I'm, <laughs> I, we know that the Packers are going to choke. And this is going to be a Bills-Rams Super Bowl. That's going to be a really fun game. You know, Josh Allen and Aaron Donald have had their history. And, yes. like, it's going to be a great game. Two two cannon-armed quarterbacks. and well, Let me tell you something, Heavy, Jacob. loaded defenses. It's going to be a great game if that happens. Well, these are some good takes. Uh, Jacob, we'll see what happens this weekend, man. Well, and th- thank you so much for uh, allowing us some insight into how your mind is working with regards to the NFL. Of course. One last thing on the show this week before uh, before we go, we usually do a section of the show called Kaepernick Watch about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. Haven't done too much on it recently, but I got to do a big shout out because Kaepernick Productions 
just signed not just a huge friend of the show but a major influence on my life uh that would be Mahmoud Abdul Raouf uh the great basketball player from the 1990s uh who basically was forced out of the league for protesting during the anthem uh Mahmoud Abdul Raouf is putting out a book uh October 18th called In the Blink of an Eye now I'm so excited about this I don't know what's if it's going to be good I don't know what but anything that elevates Mahmoud Abdul Raouf to me is something worth covering and worth following and I can't wait to get Mahmoud on the show come October so we can talk to him about this so excited about Mahmoud Abdul Raouf's book in the blink now I don't know if I can wait till October but I'm going to try Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, Dave Tigaboo, who I know wanted to jump in with that Carrington interview. Ah, thank you, Ben Carrington, uh, for coming on the show, man. You are the best. Thank you to everybody out there listening to the show, uh, all our listeners. If you like the show, leave a rating, do something, uh, you know, put tell a friend. I don't know. But just, you know, these podcasts operate by word of mouth. So if you like the show, don't just listen. Open your mouth. Thank you very much. Uh, For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.